The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The LLMs can help generate, you know, potentially millions of comments that are sufficiently different from each other that on the, if you put yourself in the shoes of the agency staff reading those comments, it might not be clear that, you know, 85% of this comment is identical to 10,000 others that we've received because Mm -hmm. there might be enough differentiation between the comments that the LLM generates that, you know, those tools might have to catch up with with the tools that are available to the commenters. So right now, we're not aware of tech inside the government that helps them distinguish tremendously different comments in this way. Uh, that's akin to the the thing that they can that they have already, which allows them to say, you know, this paragraph is eighty five percent the same as the ten thousand other comments that we got. I'm Alan Rosenstein, associate professor of law at the University of Minnesota and senior editor at Lawfare. And this is the Lawfare Podcast for May 4th, 2023. At the core of the regulatory state is the notice and comment process. Agencies propose what they're going to do, the public gets to comment, and then agencies have to respond to those comments. It's an imperfect system, to be sure, but it's fundamental to making sure that agencies act with good information and with democratic legitimacy. So what happens when those comments start being made not by people, but by ChatGPT or other large language models? How about when agencies themselves use these AI tools to analyze the comments they receive, or perhaps even to write the regulations themselves? To talk through these issues, I spoke with Bridget Dooling and Mark Fabrizio, both of the George Washington University Regulatory Studies Center. We spoke about their recent Brookings Institution report on the issue and how they think the regulatory state should deal with generative AI. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 4th. Bridget Dooling and Mark Fabrizio on robotic rulemaking. Before we get into the effect of of AI and uh, these generative large language models on the rulemaking process, I'd like to start, especially for the benefit of our audience who might not be so fully steeped in rulemaking procedure, can one of you just give an overview of how the rulemaking process works and in particular sort of how it works in, uh, in our brave new internet age before we, before we get to, the, uh, to the, the AI issues? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. And thanks so much for having us on, Ellen. It's a thrill to be here with you all. Um, so rulemaking is a process that the executive branch goes through and it wants to create law. And it's governed by a statute called the Administrative Procedure Act, which instructs agencies to propose uh, regulatory proposals, take comment on those, and then only then finalize them. 
Um, so it's a process that involves uh, a role, you know, pretty clear role for the public to play in providing feedback to regulatory proposals. So that's the baseline. And that's been in place since the Administrative Procedure Act was enacted in the 40s. And, and what is e-rulemaking, which is something you, you sort of also hear about sometimes? Yeah, e-rulemaking is, was an effort in, that continues uh, to sort of take the benefits of technology and apply it to the rulemaking process. So the rulemaking process existed before the internet. Um, but of course, you know, the internet makes it a lot easier for people to both be aware of regulatory proposals and then engage with them in the submission of comments. So the e-rulemaking program is essentially a, an effort to bring the benefits of technology into rulemaking to you know, encourage public participation and also to help the government get the best information it can from all sorts of different sources. As I understand your, your argument and, and how you describe the effect of, of AI on the rulemaking process, it's kind of the next chapter of, of e-rulemaking in a sense. And so you know, I was hoping you, you could also provide just some background on what are the main features of e-rulemaking? What have been the sort of the, the benefits and, and the challenges, again, before we get to this, this new chapter uh, in technological advance? Yeah. So e-rulemaking has made it easier for folks to participate in rulemaking. Um, it has also increased something called mass comment campaigns. So it used to be the case that, you know, there were postcard campaigns. So people would um, maybe advocacy groups or others would organize postcard campaigns for the public to express views to regulators in the course of rulemaking. The internet just makes that all a lot easier. You don't need to to get an actual postcard and a stamp, you can sort of just do it through email or, you know, through website forms that advocacy groups put together. So um, several, we've had got, at this point, you know, several decades of dealing with the large volumes, and we're talking up to millions and millions of comments that can be organized through these campaigns. So agencies have been on the receiving end of large volumes of public participation for quite a long time now. And that's given them a nice long on-ramp, basically, to help prepare them for the types of issues that that AI is provoking today. So you, you, what are the sorts of things that agents have had to deal with in terms of the, the problems created by e-rulemaking? Kind of maybe taking just like a step back from the prior question. Yeah, so e-rulemaking, I believe the initiative started in the early 2000s. And that was at a time where primarily, as Bridget mentioned, Agencies received communications from the public or public feedback and notice and comment in the mail, primarily. And at this point, you know, basically 20 years later after e-rulemaking initiative began, virtually all public comments are submitted electronically. There are still ways to mail certain public comments, but it's discouraged. It's actively discouraged by agencies. And so generally it's through email or through regulations.gov, which is the main website where agencies receive uh, information through public comments. Some agencies also have their own um, websites. For example, the Federal Communications Commission, you know, they have uh, a, a big salient example of uh, some of these bot-generated comments in the 2017 net neutrality repeal. The FCC has its own website for managing public comments. So some agencies have different ones, but basically now Ever, all the agencies get their comments electronically. And so we've moved from an entirely paper world to one where everything is coming in electronically. And of course, that whole thing has also 
led to a need for an entirely new infrastructure for processing and handling, and then ultimately considering the public's feedback in the regulatory process. So Mark, you mentioned the net neutrality rulemaking. Can you just describe what happened in that one? Yeah, this is probably the first example of bot or AI-generated comments noticeably impacting a rulemaking process. And essentially, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, proposed a rule to repeal uh, net neutrality. uh, And they received, I think, millions of comments, both on different sides of the proposal. And seemingly, uh, they were not ultimately coming from real people, uh, or were not, it was part of sort of an astroturfing campaign to flood the agency with different types of comments and try to influence the ultimate uh, result of the process. And you've seen some academic studies that have analyzed this. The Administrative Conference of the U.S. Report that Bridget um, was a co-author on talks about this as well. And we even, you know, looked into some of the literature where uh, folks have been sort of sort of doing a retrospective on how the FCC process, the FCC comment period uh, for this particular rule sort of, I would say, changed the game in terms of people realizing, oh, this is a problem or these mass campaigns, especially if it's coming from fake people or malattributed to people who didn't actually submit the comments, it's actually a real problem in the regulatory process. And just to be clear, these fake comments you didn't need AI to generate them, right? You could have just uh, a, a bunch of different templates and a bunch of fake names and a bunch of fake email addresses and just run a Python script to send the FCC a million of these astroturfed comments. Yeah, that's right. Um, you could certainly generate a large volume of comments. Uh, we'll talk more, I hope, about the procedures that the government has put in place to stop anyone from being able to transmit that many at once, especially mm-hmm. an actor that is, you know, looking to shut the system down. There are these careful protocols that the government has put in place and really quite savvy to, to deal with that exactly that issue of sort of flooding the system and, and jeopardizing the system at a security level. Uh, but you're right, you don't need AI to generate a lot of letters. The government, though, has sort of put some screens in place that make it very hard for you to submit a large volume of comments um, out of the blue to them. All right. So so now let's let's turn to the AI part of the story. You you two wrote a great sort of research report for for Brookings, setting out the sort of state of play. So can you just describe the main ways in which you feel that whether it's happening right now or it's going to happen in the near term, generative AI in in particular, so sort of the use of large language models to create plausible sounding text will affect the the rulemaking process even more than e-rulemaking has already affected it. Yeah. In in starting this piece, we wanted to think about different use cases, both for the public as well as for agencies, um, because we were hearing some concerns from folks who were worried about, you know, the system being overloaded or flooded and, you know, being jeopardized. And so we just thought we'd, you know, slow down and think about what we know about the rulemaking system, both on the commenting side, as well as on the agency side, and think about both what the risks of LLMs could be, as well as the potential upside too, and sort of bundle that all into one 
one piece. This is what what's in the Brookings piece. Um, so we start with looking at the the public side of this, right? How might LLMs or generative AI in general help the public craft better comments? Writing comments is something of a skill. It's there's a little bit of a technical art to it, and a lot of what ends up being transmitted via mass comment campaigns, sort of up or down sentiment, right? It's something like I support this proposal or I don't support this proposal ends up feeling like thumbs up, thumbs down. On the receiving end, the government can't do a whole lot with sentiment that's expressed in that manner. Agencies are bound by their statutes and their missions. And so, and this don't usually include a place for agencies to tally up you know, how many comments were for and how many comments were against. It's well accepted in the rulemaking process that it's not a vote. Um, this is a different type of lawmaking activity uh, that that is not governed by, you know, direct vote tallies. And so what what are government agencies to make of these up or down sentiment comments? It's it's challenging for them and has been for decades, you know, pre-AI. But what AI offers is the potential for the public to perhaps craft comments that end up being more persuasive. So comments that have uh, more richness to them, have more detail about a person's life and experience that could actually persuade the government and give them some insight into why a member of the public supports or doesn't support the regulatory proposal. That type of information can be useful to a regulator, and it really helps them if they have more to go on than thumbs up or thumbs down. So let me ask a follow-up on that. Obviously, if you're a member of the public, writing good comments is not necessarily part of your job description or your hobby. And that should, that it's a, it's, it, it's bad if that's a barrier for you to participate in the regulatory process. The worry though, from what have you just described it is that it's not that the AI is helping necessarily, or it doesn't sound like the AI is necessarily helping the citizen express, you know, her views as to her support or not support of the policy, because the whole point is that the agency doesn't really care in this context, whether there's a thumbs up or thumbs down, the agency rather needs to get some actual substantive critiques or suggestions for modification. But if that's what the individual is using the AI chatbot to do, in what sense can we say that the user is expressing themselves through the chatbot versus the chatbot is just like coming up with some plausible sounding argument that the user then sort of just clicks through? Um, that, 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 that does concern me from how you described the, the workflow. Yeah. I mean, if if all you did was ask something like ChatGPT, you know, write me a comment that expresses X, I would agree with you. And then you just submitted that comment. I would agree with you. That's, that doesn't necessarily reflect the views of the person that made the request. But let's say you got into a bit of a back and forth with the ChatGPT and said, I want to write a comment on, you know, the latest proposal on fireworks. And can you help me do that? And so maybe there's a back and forth that says, you know, why do you why do you oppose or support the fireworks proposal and draws out reasoning, right? Well, because I have a dog and my dog is really upset by fireworks. And so I don't want any rule that's going to make it easier for people to put off fireworks in my neighborhood, right? So now we're getting some facts on the board, at least more than a up or down yes or no. And so if the agency regulating fireworks wasn't thinking about the, how the fireworks rule would impact household pets, perhaps that is a legitimate consideration for them to consider as they move through the proposal. And, and I'll add to that too, even bringing the uh, the example from maybe like an individual submitting a comment to say an advocacy organization, maybe even a smaller advocacy mm-hmm. organization that doesn't have the resources to 
uh, hire people to write copy for them or something. What we know about large language models is that the better the prompt or the more specific the prompt, the better and more specific and tailored the output is going to be. And so if you give ChatGPT, you know, first, not just I want to write a comment that opposes this proposal, but maybe list five different points that the efficacy organization knows they're going to hit on, work that in, then it's actually going to compose something pretty persuasive that's really based on already these ideas that this organization wanted to suggest to the agency in the first place. And ultimately, ostensibly, if they're submitting the comment in the end, they agree with what the AI bot produced. And there's not uh, there's nothing restricting uh, an individual from submitting something that they didn't necessarily write themselves as something they agree with. Uh, the agency isn't necessarily looking for like original authorship when they're receiving public comments. Yeah, this is a this is a, a notice and comment process, not a college term paper, uh, which is a useful thing. <laughs> That's to... right, exactly. It's not about plagiarism or anything like that. Yeah, right. yeah. I want to go back to the, the point Bridget made um, about sort of what we mean when we talk about LLM generated comments, because I, I think I think you make a really good point, which is that it's a mistake to just think about this as, hey, Chat GPT, write me a comment, and then I click the button and it goes. It's more that I'm using Chat GPT to help me think through what I think of the notice of proposed rulemaking. So, so maybe the kind of more interesting way of thinking about this is, is rather than think about a chatbot that you use to sort of generate spam, which I think is sort of the kind of immediate concern, you think of a, uh, of, 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 a, of a program, of a platform that gets as input, you know, the notice of proposed rulemakings that are put on the federal register, it analyzes them, it understands what they are, because that's one of the things it's good at. It then gets a user, right? And it has this rule on the one hand, this user on the other hand, and then it sort of has a conversation. It, it, it makes a conversation between the user and the rule. And then based on that conversation, right, then it says, okay, now let me create a comment that, that encapsulates this dialogue that I have facilitated between you and the rule. And then it sends it to you. So it's, it's more of like a, a notice coach, rather mm-hmm. than a notice spam bot. Is, is that kind of how you see? Because that, that I do think is, is, a, is a very encouraging kind of a way that AI can actually sort of improve democracy um, rather than just undermine it, like the concerns are. Yeah, I mean, we wanted to at least put that option on the board, right? To say like, it could develop this way, right? The government could even help support that and perhaps build that type of capability into its own websites to help folks structure their comments and and ex- basically extract information that the regulator is actually going to be able to use in a constructive way. So we felt it was important just to round out the discussion about you know the risks of you know just a large quantity of spam, which I have to say don't don't really concern us so much because of the way the platform works to receive. Uh, comments on regulations.gov. I mean, the, there is tech already that's grown up after over several decades of dealing with mass comment campaigns to help agencies identify comments that have a, a high degree of similarity. And so that that is a really nice set of tools that the government has internally already um, that can help them sort of bundle bundle comments together and just look at what's unique about them. Where the LLM, you know, takes that to a place that could be concerning is that the LLMs can help generate, you know, potentially millions of comments that are sufficiently different from each other that on the 
if you put yourself in the shoes of the agency staff reading those comments, it might not be clear that you know 85% of this comment is identical to 10,000 others that we've received because mm-hmm. there might be enough differentiation between the comments that the LLM generates that you know those tools might have to catch up with with the tools that are available to the commenters. So right now I, we, we're not aware of tech inside the government that helps them distinguish tremendously different comments in this way. Uh, that's akin to the the thing that they can that they have already, which allows them to say, you know, this paragraph is eighty five percent the same as the ten thousand other comments that we got. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I 
found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So, so I think that's actually a nice segue to then turn to the, to the other side of the equation. We've been talking about how LLMs can augment the ability of commenters, whether sort of good faith commenters or astroturf commenters to send more and quote unquote better, or at least more persuasive comments to the agency. And then the problem is, okay, what's the agency supposed to do now if the volume of comments is, you know, orders of magnitude greater? Before we get into sort of the specific technological responses, can you just say a little bit about what the law says about what agencies are supposed to do with comments. Like what, what does it require, right? You know, when, when, whether it's for something like net choice where there was, it seems like an AstroTurf campaign or just take a generally very controversial proposed rule where it's just millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people just legitimately send comments. Like what is the agency supposed to do with that so that it doesn't get in trouble later on in the regulatory process or if there's a lawsuit or whatnot? Yeah. And you mentioned several features of the rulemaking system that I think actually really help the rulemaking system cope with technological developments. But the question that you asked is, you know, what's the agency's responsibility? What are they supposed to be doing with these comments? Because we've already got on the board that it's not about just tallying up the pros and cons, right? They have to do something else. So their obligation is to consider. Literally, that's what's in the statute, to consider comments received And the way that they demonstrate that they've considered is they tend to write out their reaction to comments or their responses to comments in the preamble of the final rule. So we mentioned that there's a proposed rule, there's a comment period, and that's followed by a final rule, which can be a fairly lengthy document in which the government goes through, uh, working through the different ideas that the commenters 
raised. So that's their duty. That is their duty under the law. And if they fail to do that, they can be subject to judicial review in the courts. So they take it very seriously. In my experience as a government civil servant for over 10 years, I mean, agencies take that responsibility very, very seriously. And they tend to have very robust processes for reading comments, which is why, you know, the concept of a large volume of highly differentiated and substantive comments flowing in does give me some pause from a workflow perspective that that could definitely slow them down. And they're going to have to think about how they're going to cope with that. And and to add to that too, um, the consider part and the response to comments component of a preamble, courts have indicated uh, to the agencies that that doesn't mean they have to respond to every single comment they've received individually. A lot of times they group them together. uh, And then also, and this is in a law review article that Bridget is a co-author on, is that uh, courts are concerned about significant comments, oftentimes comments that really provide something substantive about the rule, something relevant to the rule, and something that really has to do with the significance of the relevance to the rule itself. Yeah. So if they got, you know, 20,000 comments that truly were spam in the sense of just like junk mail, right, that has nothing to do with the rule, the agencies aren't obliged to spend time thinking about those. They can sort of identify them and just set them aside. Well, so so I think what this naturally suggests is, well, maybe AI is the problem and then AI is also the solution. Because, of course, one of the things that AI is very good at, these language models are exceptionally good at, is taking massive corpuses of text and then doing all sorts of natural language processing tricks on them and doing topic modeling and extracting all of this stuff. So, I mean, is it just is it just a matter of everyone's going to use AIs and it's going to be basically AIs talking to AIs. The AIs from the public are going to be talking to AIs inside the agencies. And and it's going to be the job of of the staff rather than to read every comment to sort of get the input from the agency AI and to say, okay, you identified the seven things people are saying. Let's go think about them. Yeah. On some level, that might end up being the, the case. I mean, right now it's Oftentimes when we're working, it's computers talking to computers and humans using that. And so to see maybe AI uh, being a component of that back and forth seems definitely plausible. I think one of the ways that it can particularly assist agencies is, uh, as you talked about, is summarizing and responding to the comments received. AI and other large language models can really process these large corpuses of text that they receive. And so an agency could use ChatGPT or most likely a, a fine-tuned version of it that's been trained on other maybe responses to comments, been trained on relevant materials to the specific rulemaking that's being proposed. Uh, and so the agency could use it to summarize the comments that they received on the proposal to classify the feedback based on predefined categories that they find significant, to even cluster information in a more unsupervised way based on similarities in content or style. It could actually really uh, speed up the response to comments process and maybe even help uh, agency regulators form connections or identify themes between comments that might be a little harder to do if it's just humans reading through them on their own. So you mentioned fine tuning. I want to talk about that a little bit because I actually think it's important to get a little bit into the details here because I, I think that um, this idea of agencies using comments, uh, sorry, agencies using AI to analyze comments is actually much more plausible uh, and maybe easier to implement than people think. So right, the idea of, of, of fine tuning a model is you start with one of these base models uh, and then you uh, sort of tweak the parameters by giving it a bunch of inputs that you know the desired outputs to. 
and mm -hmm. telling the AI, hey, just get a little bit better based on these input outputs. And it seems like there is a natural corpus of these inputs outputs because, of course, we have decades, right, of for every rule, you have the comments, and then you have the preamble of the final rule that says what the comments said. So you can presumably give the AI the last 20 years of this and say, this is how you should analyze comments for the preamble, go be better at it. Is, is that the general idea? Because like, you know, I mean, I don't know, we, we could all sit down and write a Python script in the next week that could do a decent amount of this. This is not rocket science. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly the idea is that we have such a large amount of text to draw from, both in terms of the agency proposals and final rules that they're putting out, those preambles that we're referring to, and the comments that have been received. And much of these are already in machine readable formats, or at least in sort of a text-based format that pretty easily can be fed uh, into the models and fine-tuned. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that along, along with, um, there's oftentimes going to be very technical sort of terminology uh, to specific rules. So I think we bring up in our piece just the the idea that, you know, EPA's Office of Air, you know, there's going to be some extremely technical terminology related to Clean Air Act regulations. So you'd probably also want to train it on some amount of text that has related to that too, so the model can get a better understanding, especially of how terms of art are used. Um, but the more broader idea that we just have lots of public comment data, both from the agency and the public side, uh, to fine-tune models on, there's, a, I think, a big opportunity there. Yeah, it's a provocative opportunity, though. And I think that this is the more interesting set of challenges to think about as opposed to the like, you know, the idea of something flooding in, which I, I think the government is well positioned to handle as a general matter. But it, it's provocative to think about, you know, who is really coming up with the first drafts of something like a response to comments. I recently, not to digress too far, but I recently did a project with Rachel Potter looking at the role of contractors in the rulemaking process. And one of the things that left us a little bit unsettled was the idea that contractors might take the first draft, might write the first draft of, say, a response to comments or something that was going to end up in the final rule document that the agency ultimately issues. And where we got a little tripped up was thinking about the idea that, you know, in, in the writing process, and all, all of us, you know, are engaged in writing things all the time. So I think you'll, this will make sense to you just intuitively. The writing is the thinking, right? The writing is, is the way you provoke, you know, different questions in your mind. And so that first draft can end up being like a highly generative time and a time when a lot of ideas can get fixed in place because you just sort of make a mental choice. Okay. I'm going to make this move now or I'm going to, you know, lay out this argument in this way. So the whoever has the pen first is actually, I think, pretty important in a text heavy, you know, decision making context. And so I do wonder a bit now, recentering this in the context of AI, I mean, as much as we might worry about conflicts of interest with a contractor or somebody that isn't entirely in a, in a perfect principal agent role with the agency, you know, AI you know, provokes similar issues, right? What type of data was it trained on? What ethical rules or benchmarks or, you know, guardrails are we building into that system for how they weigh different information? I've heard people talk about the idea of having a human in the loop, but at the volumes of text that we have here with respect to rulemaking, it's hard for me to visualize how you have a human in the loop for all of the analytical tasks that an AI is going to do without mm -hmm. losing all of the efficiency upside that AI offers us. But I, I think that this 
development really gives us a chance to think about, you know, who should be making decisions in the government and how actually we make those decisions. At what stage is the decision made? It's a little bit of a fallacy that at the last day when the head of the agency signs the rule, that that's when the decision got made. The decisions often get made well upstream from that in the drafting process. So outsourcing or sort of relying on tools to help do that drafting, I think is a pretty provocative development and one that I'd love to explore some more. Yeah, and, and this is a this is actually perfect because this is what I wanted to end our conversation on was to kind of zoom out and, and think about just the role of these tools in the regulatory process. And honestly, it doesn't have to just be the regulatory process, the governing process generally. You're absolutely right that that writing is thinking and thinking is writing. And, and you know, I think any of us that have uh, had the opportunity to, uh, for example, clerk for a judge uh, will reflect sometimes a bit uneasily, especially if we wrote first draft of things about. You know, wow, that's that's a lot of that's a lot of uh, responsibility to give a you know fresh out of law school uh, uh, clerk. And you have similar concerns, obviously, with with AI. So I, I want to finish by sort of asking you all to reflect on what the government, what the different agencies can do to use these tools responsibly. I mean, I think I think these tools are clearly coming. I think the idea of trying to you know bury our heads in the sand is as unrealistic as trying to have agencies, you know, not use Microsoft Word or something like that, or the internet. It's, it's, it's obviously something we're going to have to get used to. But what can agencies do, right? Is, is, is it a problem, for example, that at least so far, the big uh, large language models are all not just privately run, but they're closed source. You can't look into, you know, chat GPT, you know, to chat GPT's code, or you can't, you know, OpenAI doesn't publish GPT's, you know, weights and parameters. Do we need a, a public option for, for AI? I mean, do we, ha- and, and then another question we might ask is, you know, is there enough expertise uh, in, in these agencies? And do we want every agency to have to have a chief AI officer? How, how do you think about that, you know, in the next, you know, three to, to five years? Because I'm sure it's going to be a huge issue. Yeah, those are great questions. And I, I think that's going to be one of the areas where we face a lot of difficulty is that, like you said, ChatGPT and the other systems, they're closed source. So we, we can't actually see the model weights. We don't even know exactly what the training data are. I think for GPT-4, we don't even really know sort of the broad strokes of where the training data came from. And it's going to be hard. It's unlikely the government's going to invest the resources to create one of these similar programs themselves. And so that means, you know, negotiating some sort of arrangement with OpenAI or whatever company is developing them uh, to make the information more transparent and more public, that might have some potential. Although I, you know, that sounds pretty difficult. I think at the very least, if agencies do use these, uh, say in in the way we mentioned to help draft response to comments, they can at least make public the training data they use for fine tuning. Uh, that's the very minimum uh, that they can do. But there are some real concerns and I think real valid concerns about how, yeah, that if these models are not publicly available, how transparent really is it? Mm -hmm. Uh, And not so much. Um, I mean, another thing the agencies should probably do is also disclose how they used the AI software in whatever way they did for drafting preambles or finalizing a rule or processing comments, those are things that should be disclosed, uh, even if the underlying models themselves are not publicly available. Yeah. I mean, to me, the whole thing cries out for just governance, 
Yeah. It's clear there's not a one and done situation where you can just issue one policy memo or, you know, buy one, procure one tool, right? We're, this is the beginning of something that could be truly transformative. And so what, what gives me some comfort is that the federal agencies have a long running interagency working group that focuses yeah. on e-rulemaking type of issues. And so this is just, it is a new work stream for them, I'm sure. Um, but the infrastructure and the relationships are there within the government to be sharing best practices, to be talking to each other about what they're seeing, if they're running into issues. And if um, a couple of weeks ago, the White House rolled out a new executive order, or the president signed a new executive order on modernizing regulatory review. And one aspect of that is that it directed the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, where I used to work, OIRA, to, um, to basically to be involved in issuing guidance and tools to help agencies with phenomena such as the role of AI in rulemaking. So that's a pretty strong signal that the White House understands the significance of this, that it's tapped an office that is uh, within the executive office of the president to keep an eye on this and to issue guidance and tools as appropriate. But also that sits on top of a really long running interagency community that coordinates the tech and the security and all the other sort of policy implications that have been provoked by e-rulemaking, you know, really since, since the internet began. Well, I think that's a great place to end the conversation. Uh, we're obviously at the beginning of what's going to be a long and very, very interesting period uh, for, for all of us, um, and especially for those in the agencies. And we'll uh, have you uh, back on, I'm sure, again, to talk about it. So thank you so much, Bridget and Mark. Thank you. Thank you and the Lawfare team. Thank you so much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.